thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with Chris Smith and me, Phil Sansom. This week we're going back to the basics of how science itself works. What's a scientific paper? What's peer review? And when Boris Johnson says he's following the science, what does that actually mean? Plus in the news, is the UK's new COVID-19 tracing app secure? the doctors that didn't know they'd been infected with coronavirus, and should we really be bailing out the airlines? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Well, first up, here in the UK, we've had mixed messages from the government about the easing of lockdown, and we've also seen a seeming increase in the spread of the coronavirus – Chris, as a virologist who's been following all of this closely, what's been going on? The big news is that we've had the announcement of an approved test. This is an antibody test, unlike the current uh, genetic test that we've been doing to tell whether people have the virus right now. This is going to be a breakthrough because what it will enable us to do is to work out how many people have already been exposed to the virus, how many people are therefore immune, and how many people remain susceptible. We think at the moment it's somewhere around about 10 to 12% at most, but we don't know for sure. This will help to narrow that. Other big news includes the fact that there are plans in place in the UK for children to return to school next month. Of course, this is a a degree of uncertainty and people are quite worried about this because they're concerned about whether or not this will be safe for these children. Uh, Many people are trying to reassure them by saying, well, you know, young children are at the lowest risk of all groups of developing severe disease with this. That said, we have seen headlines about a new condition called Kawasaki disease, not a new condition, but newly associated with coronavirus and appears to be cropping up more commonly in young children. This is an inflammatory condition where individuals who are affected get a very high temperature, sore eyes, red mouth, fingers and toes and swollen glands. And they can also get some heart problems and some vascular problems. It's a very rare phenomenon, but there have been some cases reported in association with coronavirus infections. So people are actively pursuing that. So that's another one to watch at the moment. Meanwhile, there's the NHS's mobile phone app designed to tackle COVID-19, which is currently being tested on the Isle of Wight and will soon be rolled out nationwide. Now, its job is to track down everyone an infected person has been in contact with. And it's part of this wider approach to test that, Chris, you just talked about testing, but test, trace and isolate infected individuals so they don't spread the disease. Now, this so-called contact tracing is an old idea that normally involves interviews and questionnaires. The app, on the other hand, is for catching connections that these older methods would have missed, like strangers on a bus. But there have been some questions about privacy for the people who are going to be using it. So Phil asked security engineer Greg Paul to explain how it works. When you're using the app, you don't need to do anything. In the background, though, your phone is 
seeing if any other devices appear over Bluetooth. And if there are devices running the app out there, they'll exchange a little handshake and they'll keep a record of that. Nothing will happen with that. It will stay on the phone and in 21 days time, it will disappear and be deleted off your phone. But if somebody later reports symptoms, you know, they start to feel unwell, you can click a button and upload to the NHS a list of the people, you know, the devices that you were in contact with. The app allows the NHS to get an idea of whether this is likely to be a true claim of symptoms or a false claim of symptoms by someone, you know, just having a laugh and clicking the button, for example, based on if they've been exposed. But then they can actually alert the people that they've been in contact with. And that could allow you to get people and say to them, look, you might be exposed, you should self-isolate. And then in two or three days time, they might experience symptoms. Don't you need everyone to have the app, though? You don't need everyone to have the app. Uh, research suggests that if you get about 60% of the population, you'll start to get some gain. You're never going to get everyone to install it, but that's okay because you're still going to have regular procedures of contact tracing. People will be following distancing measures. They'll be washing their hands. But the idea is to augment that process. How does this compare to uh, apps that other countries are trying? Like... Um this COVID safe app that Australia had been using? So there's two general approaches that are being taken to how these apps have been developed at the moment. There's the centralized and the decentralized model. Australia's COVID safe app is using the UK's approach, the centralized model. What's the difference between that and decentralized? Some countries are looking at building decentralized apps. A lot of European countries are interested. These kind of work almost in the reverse manner of how the UK's approach is. The UK focuses on someone who's infected sending a list of people they were near to a central server, you know, run by the NHS. In the decentralized model, everybody keeps a list of the devices that they see. And if someone gets infected, what everyone else has to do is look through their record of what devices they've been around and see if any of the infected ones are devices that they've been close to. In both cases, you don't send anything to the health service server unless you've been infected. Can I make a comparison to see if I understand it? Sure. Is it like you've got to give the police an alibi for something? The centralized version is you saying, well, I saw this person, this person, this person, and they can all verify that I'm fine. Whereas the decentralized version is going, okay, well, I, I was wearing a green hat and a red jumper. And so people would have seen that. So you can ask people if they saw someone with a green hat and a red jumper. That's a pretty good analogy. In the decentralized model, you have to tell everybody what happened. Whereas in the centralized one, you tell the NHS what happened and they can go and alert people as needed. To someone who's not a software guy, that seems like quite a small distinction. It seems a small distinction, but from the privacy perspective, the distinction here is quite important. A lot of people feel that the privacy of a decentralized system is better. I think what, what they're often overlooking is that even in the decentralized system, they are actually revealing this information. And if you create a list of people who have been infected, there's a lot of privacy concerns around that, especially when that list is being circulated to everybody as a virtue of the design. With the NHS system, you don't do that. What you do is you privately notify the NHS and the NHS notifies someone there's no big list that anyone can look at to see who's been infected. Any country that's looking to build the decentralized model will end up having such a list. A lot of countries are looking at the Apple and Google approach, and it's the approach they're firmly pushing to everyone. 
But it seems like people are worried rather than about everyone having their information, maybe like a big company having the list of where you've been and who you've been in contact with. Sure. So the first thing that's important to know is with both these approaches, there's no list of where people have been. There's no location data being gathered. There's no location data being stored. There's no location data being sent anywhere. Now, with regard to who people have been in contact with, we're not talking about names and addresses. We're not talking about phone numbers. What we're talking about is random numbers that are linked to that person, but there isn't actually, it's not possible to go and look at who that is and determine anything based on that. Greg, are you going to get the app? Yep, I've already downloaded it. You've already downloaded it? Yes, so for the purpose of the research, I've already downloaded it. How do you find it? It's very simple and straightforward. There's there's not really much to it, to be quite honest. If you had to give it a, a Greg Paul privacy rating out of 10, what would it be? I think um, for this app, we'd probably be looking somewhere around an 8 out of 10. There you go. Greg Paul, mobile networks and security engineer at the University of Strathclyde, giving his rating on the NHS COVID-19 contact tracing app. I'm quite looking forward to downloading it and having a go myself this week. Now, when I'm not actually broadcasting about COVID-19, my day job is actually on the front line as a virologist at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. And hospitals really matter in this equation because they could end up being hotspots for coronavirus spread, which was the thinking behind a study into how many Adam Brooks staff have been infected. Now, putting it mildly, it is quite worrying because it turned out that quite a few have been coming to work without realising they've been infected with and carrying the coronavirus. The results come from Cambridge University microbiologist Steve Baker and infectious diseases consultant Mike Weeks. It's obviously a huge issue because staff within the hospital could transmit the infection to other staff and to patients and actually hospitals could become their own individual hubs of transmission unless we do something about it. Staff wear PPE throughout the wards, but obviously people don't wear PPE in staff rooms, they don't wear PPE when they go to lunch, because you can't. And so there's the possibility that the virus could transmit. We got our infectious diseases team to visit different wards around the hospital and take swabs from people's throats and nose so that they could go to Steve's lab and we could see if they actually had coronavirus. You get these samples from all over the hospital. How many samples did you get, Steve? At the moment, I think we've screened about two and a half to 3,000 individuals in the hospital. How long does this take? The whole process, from the point that we can receive the swabs to we can report back, the quickest we've done it is about four hours. Usually we report back a result within 24 hours. And, Mike, you've looked at the staff members. What did you find? It's really interesting. We actually found that three in 100 people actually tested positive for coronavirus. And actually, these people split into three groups. The first is people who have no symptoms at all, and so they just have no idea they have the coronavirus. The second is a group of people who've had mild symptoms like a bit of a cough, a sore throat. Some have even lost their sense of smell, and they don't think that they have enough symptoms to warrant doing anything about in general. The final group we found actually had had coronavirus a long time ago, and they'd had fever and a prolonged cough, the typical symptoms, and they'd appropriately self-isolated at home and then come back to work when they were well. You can still test positive even though you shouldn't be infectious. The fact that these people are not reporting symptoms is worrying though, isn't it? Because we're relying on symptoms to detect who we think might have it in society. 
You're quite right. Um, unfortunately, this is one of the features of coronavirus that some people just have no symptoms. And some people's symptoms are so minor, they just don't think they should do anything about it. But we're really encouraging staff now to come and see us so they can get tested if they have any symptoms. Hospitals are seeking to control this by dividing the hospital up into areas that are red. They have patients in them with coronavirus as a diagnosis confirmed. There are also areas of the hospital which are regarded as green. Those people don't have coronavirus. If you look at the staff who work in those different areas, are there any differences in the likelihood that they've got coronavirus infection because they're being exposed more in red areas? Do they catch it more? We did actually find a significant difference between red and green areas. In red areas, a greater proportion of staff actually do have coronavirus overall. But it might be because staff are getting it from patients, it might be staff are getting it from staff, or it might even be that we'd sampled more of the red areas a bit earlier. We sampled over the course of three weeks, but as everyone had been on lockdown, there were fewer and fewer cases in the community. We can't make any firm conclusions from this, but what we can definitely say is that this needs to be studied a lot more. What if uh, you're asked by the hospital, right, what do we do with these findings? What are your advice points? test, test, test and then test again because the kind of approaches we can apply in the community like these contact tracing apps on iPhones won't necessarily work in hospitals because so many people have contact with other people. Really important stuff. Mike Weeks and before him Steve Baker. They're both at Adam Brooks Hospital. Hello, I'm Chris Barrow bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news... Hideo Kojima, creator of the Metal Gear franchise, was honoured with the BAFTA Fellowship, the highest accolade the organisation can give. Reviews. Away. Why are you cutting everything off? No, that's... that's not how it's supposed to be. No, you wanted a short haircut. Wow. And we also go back in time with Retro Revival. Chalk! Yes, no, Mum, <laughs> you just read it. I'm Naked Gaming. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how to stay sane after your 15th Zoom video meeting of the day and we'll also find out how a dark matter physicist has taken his science home with him for the duration of the lockdown. But first, among the many economic casualties of the pandemic have been the airlines. The UK summer's about to start, but Heathrow Airport is reportedly operating at only 1 20th capacity with a similar picture across the world. Many air operators are asking their governments for bailouts to help them weather this economic storm. Most people see functioning air travel as an economic necessity, but should we be handing out public money to an industry that is ostensibly one of the major causes of climate change? Eva Higginbotham has been speaking to Richard Black from the think tank called the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. It seems that the lockdown on the airline industry is going to carry on for months and the impact will probably be felt for years, to be honest. Obviously, for those airlines, they have a choice. They either close or, or shut down some of their operations or they seek some kind of economic relief, bailout, call it what you will. And that's what most of them are already doing. Within Europe, airlines collectively have asked for well over £10 billion Pounds, and we, one can expect those amounts to carry on going up, I think. Isn't that kind of propping up an industry that we know has negative consequences considering the emissions that we have from air travel and climate change? 
Yes, I mean, if you look across all sources of carbon emissions, aviation emissions are rising among the fastest of any anything we do, basically. And ways to solve this through technology aren't immediately obvious in aviation. It's really difficult to see how those emissions can be brought down anywhere near to zero in the 30 years that scientists tell us it would be wise to bring emissions down to zero. Does it seem likely that the airlines are going to be bailed out by the government? Yes, I think it's inevitable that airlines will be bailed out. So then the question is really, will governments put any conditions on those bailouts? Air France, the national French carrier, they're going to have to halve their emissions from travel within France by 2024, in just four years. Now, that can't be done by technology, so it does mean that Air France will actually be reducing the number of flights it makes within France. Of course, France has a very good train network, and so there's talk, for example, well, any journey that can be done in two and a half hours, you just won't be able to fly that route, Air France. Sorry. That's the sharpest example yet we have of a government that is putting environmental conditions on that airline bailout. What other bailout conditions could government set? I put this question to Brian O'Callaghan, a researcher from the University of Oxford's Smith School for Enterprise and the Environment. Those green conditions could include reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050. They could include intermediate targets like reaching 30% sustainable fuels by 2035 uh, or a whole host of other green type conditions. Governments can set environmentally friendly conditional bailouts, but how do we make sure that the airline will actually follow through with the commitment? The way you do that is by creating a negative result for failure to abide by the conditions. For example, if you're unable to meet a five-year partial target, the government is able to say, in exchange for the money that we gave you, we're taking half of your company and giving that half of the company to taxpayers. What that would mean is that Existing shareholders and existing executives suddenly have their current shareholdings cut in half. That creates significant financial incentive for them to stick to the conditions which the government stipulate. A classic example of carrot and stick then. We'll give you some money now so your company doesn't go bust. But if you break your green promises, we're going to take ownership of some of your company. Now, back to Richard Black. Climate change is still going to be a problem once we've you know, come out of the end of coronavirus, why would you put loads of what's essentially public money, our money as taxpayers, into industries that are going to carry on emitting carbon dioxide and which will therefore create serious problems in the future with climate change? I think there are two ways of you know, philosophically looking at bailout. One is that you'd simply try to go back to business as usual. The other is that you actually anticipate the future and you look at where economic trends are going and you try and build industries that will have a strong survival, they'll be sustainable in the future because then you're helping where the market is going anyway and you're building industries that will be sustainable in the future. So I think there are two rationales for doing this. One is purely economic and looking to the industries of the future and the other is that if you can basically meet your climate change goals at the same time as rebuilding the economy, why wouldn't you do that? Richard Black from the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. And before him, Brian O'Callaghan from Oxford University talking about bailing out the airlines with green conditions. Now let's return indoors, because for many of us, that's where we're spending our days at the moment, using the internet to communicate with the outside world. 
Our conversations have gone virtual like they never have before. Children are attending virtual school. Many of us are working from home and attending relentless video meetings. And almost everyone, regardless of whether you're still in work or not, is using video calls to keep in touch with friends and family. So what do we actually know about how a virtual chat compares to a face-to-face one? Katie Haler spoke to social neuroscientist Antonia Hamilton from University College London. If you're on a live video call, one-to-one, it's pretty similar to a real face-to-face conversation, how your eye movements, physiological responses behave. But then there's other aspects where it's much, much harder being on a video call. And if I'm looking at an object or a piece of paper in front of me, to then share that with the person on the other screen is much trickier. And I've got to start sort of thinking about camera angles and turning things around. Having video calls with multiple people is much harder because you don't know who's going to speak next and you're losing track of who's where. And does the quality of the communication differ? It probably does, but it's hard to pin down the exact ways in which it does. And I think it depends on the kind of conversation you're trying to have. When's our next meeting and what's happening on this particular event or something? That's probably going to be just as effective in either context. Whereas if it's a difficult conversation, it's a highly personal conversation, it's probably going to have a much bigger impact on the quality. When we last spoke, you mentioned you were just about to start a study on virtual conversations. We create a virtual person who will have a conversation with you we can have two different virtual people. One of them nods in the way that we think is natural. And then another virtual person, they just do some sort of head movement behavior that isn't related to the conversation. They're pretty preliminary results, but certainly our data suggests that you like the character more if that character shows natural head movement behavior. They're nodding in time with you. They're nodding in response to the things that you're saying. I've just noticed I've been nodding along to you, despite the fact that we've turned the webcam off, so you can't... (laughs) You can't see that I'm nodding along, but there we go. Yes, I was talking to somebody, I'm not sure if it was you, but somebody in radio who said that radio people do a lot of nodding when they're doing an interview behind glass and they want the other person to keep talking. I definitely find virtual communication more taxing than face-to-face. Why is it so tiring? You're not getting these cues automatically, and so you're having to make a bit more effort to remember that there's another person there, that they can see you. Often you're seeing yourself on the camera, which is really distracting. And so you're sort of having to work a bit harder with all of these aspects of engagement. Can I ask you about differences in social behaviour? Because mm-hmm. I think some people, and they move quite a bit more in conversations. And indeed, some people find it quite difficult to communicate socially. Do you think yeah. that has implications for the pretty intense time we're in now? I think it probably does. There isn't new data yet on how people are coping with everything having to switch to virtual conversations. I know a group who are working with children with autism, interacting with them over webcam interfaces, and some of the autistic children seem to engage quite well with that because they have less anxiety when there isn't a physical person in the room, but they'll still engage with the person at the other end of the camera. But other people find that they really want much more physical social interaction and not getting that from the webcam. Skype conversation doesn't leave you at the end with that same feeling of friendship, maybe, that you would have from actually having a pint in a pub with a real friend. Do you have any communication tips during this time when virtual communication is just so much more frequent? I guess the main thing is to have a bit more patience with other people, with the technology, 
certainly if it's a group call, it's very worthwhile establishing rules at the beginning of this is how we're going to organize things. Some of these bits of software have things where you can click a button to send a clap or a heart or a smile or a thumbs up or something like that. And we can see in the context of things like text messages, how emojis have now, you know, become this enormous world of different things because people want ways to communicate without having to put everything in words. I encourage people to use option to chat, the option to put some emojis, because all of these types of back channeling are really, really useful in conversations. And that's, again, one of the things that we often lose when we go virtual. So we can do it, but it does take more effort. It takes more patience. And it's important to take breaks and get away from the laptop as well sometimes. Here, here. Ironic that they did actually turn off the webcam when they were doing an interview all about video conferencing, wasn't it? Anyway, thanks very much to Antonia Hamilton there. And she did mention her study results are preliminary. They haven't yet been published or undergone peer review, but that doesn't mean that screen breaks are any less important. And finally, this working from home, it's all very well in theory. But how have scientists been adapting to life without their labs? We're exploring some of their weird and wonderful home setups on our show. And this week, here's how one physicist has been scratching his scientific itch. Hi, my name's Ben McAllister. I'm an experimental physicist, and like many of you, I'm currently working from home. What does an experimental physicist do at home, you might ask? Well, so far I've investigated the gravitational and mechanical properties of my cat. I've constructed a helpful robot from scrap materials and household rubbish. And, like many of you, I've been conducting thorough experiments in fluid mechanics. I want to make it clear to my funding bodies that that was all a joke. In all seriousness, I can actually get quite a bit of my real research done from home. My work primarily focuses on the detection of dark matter, which is this invisible stuff that makes up five-sixths of all the matter in the universe, and which we have almost no idea what it is. Fortunately for me, and my ability to work from home, one of the things we do know about dark matter is that it's all around us, passing through the Earth and through your very body right now as you hear this. We just can't see, touch, or feel it. So, I've captured a little jar of dark matter here, scooped it up in my kitchen, and I've been studying its properties from my living room. Oh. Oh. Okay, so believe it or not, I can't actually do that part at home. All of our fancy machines and equipment which we use to try and detect the dark matter are down in the lab on the other side of town. But, thanks to the magic of the internet, I can control and operate a lot of those machines remotely and continue working on detecting that pesky invisible stuff. Myself or a colleague does have to go in the lab from time to time to do a little bit of maintenance or swap out a component so that we can continue to operate the machines remotely, but we minimise the number of people in there and it's a big lab so we can easily maintain a safe social distance. And of course, I can do a lot of the other jobs I have to do like data analysis, experimental simulations and writing up experiments from the comfort of my armchair without bothering the cat any further. Oh god, the robot's back! Thanks very much. The very sadly uh, late Ben McAllister there, a dark matter physicist at the University of Western Australia. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. It's me, Chris Smith, and Phil Sansom. And this week on the show... We will be driven not by mere hope, 
or economic necessity. We're going to be driven by the science, the data and public health. Now, here in the UK, the government's frequent mantra is that they are guided by the science. And scientific papers and studies are frequently making the top news stories most of the time. But for many people, this is a totally foreign landscape. And some of the words that are being used are very much a foreign language. So we want to go back down to basics. What is a scientific paper and where are they published? Who's checking to make sure they're accurate? And when a government like the UK's claims to be following the science, what's going on behind the scenes? First up, we need to explain some terms. If you've listened to any of our shows before, or even if you've just listened to the first half of this one, you'll have heard words like paper, journal and peer-reviewed being tossed around. These make up the process by which almost all science is published for the world to see. That process is a relatively recent one in our history, and it's changed a lot over the past century or two. Melinda Baldwin is an historian at the American Institute of Physics, and she researches these changes. She took me through them. So a scientific journal is a publication that publishes articles revealing new research results. There are a lot of different kinds of scientific journals. So, for example, Nature, which is one of the most prestigious journals in the world today, tends to publish short articles from every discipline. But many scientific journals today publish much longer articles and publish in a very narrow discipline. Is this how science has always sort of been published? It's not. For much of the early history of scientific publishing, Scientific results could be published in a lot of different types of formats. So, for example, Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, that's a book. You also see um, men of science publishing their findings in pamphlets, in encyclopedias, occasionally in newspaper articles. Why did journals then become sort of the thing? During the 19th century, science um, as a whole became a much more stable career path. In the early 19th century, oftentimes, especially in the English-speaking world, people who wanted to pursue scientific research had to do it as sort of their after-hours hobby. Either that or they had to be independently wealthy, so they would have enough money to support themselves. But during the 19th century, science becomes a much more stable and respectable career path. And what that means for publishing is that scientists no longer have to worry about selling their scientific findings to an audience outside of other scientists. And so the journal is a place where you're writing by and for other scientific researchers. Science articles today are, they, they obviously vary, but generally they're really hard to read. Yes, absolutely. If you go back to an early issue of Nature, you know, one published in, let's say, 1870, just about anyone could have read most of the articles. By 1900, it's completely different. And then by the 20th century, you have articles that are so detailed and so specialized that not only can you not understand this biology article if you're not a scientist, you can't understand this biology article if you're not a biologist. People describe articles as peer-reviewed. Is that people who do know about that article saying, yes, that's okay? Yes, exactly. When we say something has been peer-reviewed, the article has been looked at by a number of specialists, usually one to four, and that those uh, peer reviewers have said, yes, this article should be published. What was there before this? Refereeing was the term that was usually used. Starting in the 1830s, at the Royal Society of London, um, 
And the society started soliciting formal reports about papers that were submitted to them for publication. The idea originally was that those reports were going to be published to spark scientific debates and discussions. That doesn't really take hold, but that comes in handy when you have someone who's a member of the Royal Society, but has maybe written something that is a little wacky. And so by having these referee reports to fall back on, the editor can say, oh, I'm terribly sorry. The referees said the piece is not acceptable. Covering their butts. Yes, exactly. After that, a lot of learned society journals tend to use external refereeing to evaluate their submissions. Commercial journals, for-profit journals, generally don't. And they don't do that well into the 20th century. It's not until the late Cold War that the scientific community starts to feel that something has to be peer-reviewed in order to be considered scientifically legitimate. Given that this is sort of now the way that people agree, yeah, that's legitimate science, do you think that if you showed that process to someone from like the 19th century, it would just be totally unrecognizable? I think it would be unrecognizable. And I think that if we showed the way we do things today to someone from uh, the 1830s or the 1850s, they would probably see some problems. They would say, what if the paper gets sent to a competitor who wants to uh, sabotage? What if the paper gets sent to someone who's not really an expert in your field? The fascinating thing to me about looking at the history of peer review is how much it changes over time. And it's something that can change again in the future. Melinda Baldwin, historian of science at the American Institute of Physics. Nowadays, high-ranking scientists are expected to volunteer a chunk of their time to review the work of other people in their field, and that's before a journal will consider publishing the piece of work. This is the foundation of trust that science today gets built on. But how sturdy is that foundation? Are there parts of that that could be done and should indeed be done differently? Brian Utsi is here with us from Northwestern University. He researches the sociology of science. So, Brian, um, how well does peer review perform today? The process of peer review works very well in some ways, but there's definitely room for improvement. So peer review basically tries to do two things. One, it wants to make sure that the findings are presented and the study was done correctly. Were the right statistics used? Were the right inferences drawn, etc.? And then the other thing that peer review tries to do is to make sure that the result is reproducible, that it can be replicated. So that something that is published today will work for the public tomorrow, for a week from now, for a month from now, even over an entire lifetime. And how reproducible is the science then? If if the whole process is working really well, we should have really, really reproducible papers, are they? Well, the issue here is, is that we're beginning to see that scientific papers reproduce at a rate lower than expected. In psychology, economics, and some parts of medicine and uh, biology, we're learning that about 60% of the papers do not replicate. Goodness me. So 60% of the science, if I take a paper off the shelf and I copy what the scientist who wrote the paper did and I try to repeat their work, I get a different answer. Is that what you're saying? That's precisely what I'm saying. So you use exactly the same procedures, you do exactly the same experiment, but maybe you only change the subjects in the experiment, and you find out that the first result was a fluke, not a fact. But that sounds like a disaster. Well, this is one of the reasons why people are beginning to look at this problem in much more detail, trying to find ways in which to improve the process of science so that more papers will replicate, and also trying to find ways to predict whether a paper will replicate or not 
before it gets into the public domain. But do we know why this is happening, Brian? Has anyone unpicked the process that's leading to a paper just not working? Is it, is it deceit on the part of scientists? Are they, are they just publishing fraudulent science or is something else going on? Good question. Well, you know, the first thing that people looked at was, is this being driven by deceit? And it's very little evidence that it is. It appears that these are honest uh, mistakes that are occurring in the research process itself. Now, what you have to remember is, you know, some papers will not replicate. You can't expect 100% replication. Science is an innovative field. You're going to have uh, experiments that end up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. But 60% is too high, and currently people are trying to bring that level down by understanding better the research process itself and training people to learn how to make sure their research replicates before they submit it for peer review. Who are the worst culprits? Currently, we can't give an answer to that because we haven't really begun to look at replication in all branches of science. Science is in an amazingly diverse area of study from everything from the very hard sciences where you might look at like power station reliability all the way over to mental health. What we do know is is that the areas that we have looked at so far do vary in their levels of replication. So psychology and economics, medicine, some areas of biology, up to 60% of the papers appear to be failing. In other areas, it, like engineering, it appears to be lower. How are you actually studying this? And I have to put it to you, is your research reproducible? I could answer one of those questions. No, just joking. Um, one way to do this is to improve procedures that scientists would use to make sure that their papers will replicate. Another way to do it is to develop procedures that allow someone who is reviewing someone else's paper to know whether the paper will replicate or not. My approach to that has been to develop an artificial intelligence system that reads papers, finds cues in the papers that human beings otherwise miss when they're reviewing the paper, but the AI system can tell us correlate with an accurate prediction about whether the paper will or will not replicate. And does it work? It, uh, it works approximately 80% of the time. But the important thing is, is that for the papers that it feels most sure about, because the artificial intelligence system gives you a level of confidence in its prediction, for the top 10% of its most confident papers, it's right 100% of the time. So that gives you real security in knowing that if you were to go to these papers and use them for whatever investment purposes or to build on in future research, you can be uh, fairly convincingly um, secure that you're building on a fact, not a fluke in the paper. Brian, I'm 100% sure that that was really interesting. And thank you very much for joining us to tell us about the work. That's Brian Nutzi from Northwestern University. This week, we're running a crash course on parts of the process of science itself. So far, we've heard how the results of a study or experiment go from private into the public domain. Now we're going to explore the big changes happening to this process because of the pandemic. And there has been just this incredible boom in coronavirus science. We've seen more than 10,000 peer-reviewed articles on the subject since only February. Every team is rushing to publish as quickly as possible. And the quickest way to do so actually isn't via a peer-reviewed journal at all, but rather through what's called a preprint server, 
online platforms that have been the subject of global scientific attention and frantic collaboration. Theo Bloom is one of the founders of these preprint servers called MedArchive. She's also executive editor of the British Medical Journal. Theo, can you explain what is a preprint server? Yes, we heard that scientists write up their results into papers to share with one another because science is a collective enterprise and we all build on what everyone else has done before. But typically, the process of peer review and preparing things for publication in a journal can take several weeks up to months. And in this pandemic, we all want to know things much sooner than that. Now, some scientists have always shared material with a few colleagues at the same time as they send it to a journal. But with the internet, we have the ability to share with absolutely everyone. And so preprint servers are a place to post that draft article that you've got ready for a journal, but put it out to the rest of the world too, where it can have an awful lot of people looking at it, commenting and saying whether they think the study's been well done and so on. Presumably, that's been something that's used uh, quite widely in this pandemic to study the coronavirus. What's been happening? Yeah, so preprint servers have existed in the physical sciences for tens of years, and they're only much more recently in the life sciences. In the last few years, they've been growing in importance. And MedArchive, the clinical preprint server that I work with, only launched last June. We wanted to be very careful about preprints which could affect how people take their medications, cause public health panics if we weren't careful, and so on. So we we happened to launch just a little while before the pandemic came along. But really from the moments in December, January, when Chinese researchers were starting to see unusual cases of pneumonia and worked out that they came from a previously unknown virus, they have been sharing their results and now the rest of the world too, as rapidly as they can. And that has meant in preprint form. What kind of scale are we talking about? How many preprints are you getting? How much in a day, for example? We've currently posted around two or 3,000 preprints on MedArchive, and we're seeing submissions of 70, 80 a day at the moment. You know, what's the best mode of treatment? What's the best models for how the disease is progressing? What has worked in countries that have seen reduced rates and so on? Theo, do you get oversight of what goes on to MedArchive? So if I, if I wrote a paper and it was complete bunkum, Could I just put it there and you would put it out? Or would you actually have some kind of ability to pull things that were quite clearly misleading? There's two answers to that. One is that things are screened before they go up. This is not as rigorous as the peer review we've heard about. It's not about is it right and is it replicable. It simply is this ethical, reasonable and unlikely to cause harm to individuals or the population. But even so, that's a multi-stage process that takes a handful of days before things are posted. And on very rare occasions where something gets hugely criticised after it is posted, it can be taken down. But of course, we know with, you know, in the internet in general, it's very hard to remove something. So we'd rather it was right before we post it rather than having to try and remove it afterwards. It's interesting you raise the point about the fact there is discussion and critique because that's kind of a strength of this in the sense that uh, researchers can almost like have a a preliminary run at seeing how 
it's almost like a testing the waters, how their papers likely to be received. And they can perhaps take some of that feedback and respond to it. Some people are saying they're concerned, though, when they put things into these preprint servers, that someone might come along and steal their ideas and then gazump them, scientifically speaking, and publish the, the real deal before they do by just replicating the work themselves. I mean, there, there certainly is that fear. But one of the things about posting it publicly with a date stamp is that the world can see that you did it first. And I think journals are increasingly recognising that that's an important feature. Scientists were realising this even before the pandemic when they rely on things like showing what work they're doing to get jobs and, and promotions and, and grants from the funding bodies who, who fund their research that being able to say, look, I've done this work and completed it in January of this year, even if they haven't yet got a fully peer-reviewed journal article out. So in fact, in some ways, it does give them protection from, from being scooped by someone else. We've included in this programme in the past a number of items of things which have come from MedArchive and other preprint servers. We have been at pains to emphasise that this is non-peer-reviewed yet. The thing is, is there not a danger that you will end up with things passing straight through and ending up in print, in press, in podcasts, in television and radio programmes and therefore disseminating the wrong message if it's subsequently found that they are flawed and there hasn't been that normal ed editorial process that would have stopped that at the peer review process? So there's a danger of misinformation proliferating off the back of these preprints. That's clearly a risk. And what I would say is twofold to that. One is... There's an awful lot of things published in journals that turn out to be wrong. And for that reason, if no other, most journalists and others will look for more than one claim of something before deciding that it's right. It's one of those things we're seeing a number of different reports from different locations, for example, saying that people lose their sense of taste and smell when they have a coronavirus infection. You know, that started to come out as, as little reports of a few people in Italy and a few other people in China. And gradually it becomes, actually, we're seeing that everywhere and is something that can be added to trackers of symptoms, for example. So I would say it's always the case that a single result should probably not be relied on. But it's also an obligation to those who are desperate to share knowledge, to try and, and temper what they're saying with how much can we rely on this particular finding. Theo, thank you very much for explaining how it works for us. That's Theo Bloom, co-founder of the preprint server MedArchive and the executive editor of the British Medical Journal. Finally, it's all very well publishing science for us general public or for other scientists. But how do you get that information to our governments and political leaders? Here in the UK, as in other countries, that process is a little mysterious, involving advisory groups such as SAGE or the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. Here's the government's chief scientific advisor, Patrick Valance, who chairs SAGE. What we don't give advice on is precise policy decisions. Those are decisions which ministers must take. What we try to do is to come down to what we think is two or three options. I doubt we've ever gone and given a single option. We're more likely to have said, here are the range of things. Well, here to shed a bit more light on how this all works is Jana Basvik, who is a sociologist at Cambridge University. Jana, can you just translate for us a bit? What is Patrick Vallance saying happens then? 
what Patrick is saying happens there is that scientific advisory groups do not come up with policies. So they do not decide what the government is going to do. They provide the government with the necessary scientific basis, so with the evidence that can help guide their decisions about what is going to happen. But they do not make those decisions themselves, of course. That does mean, of course, you're then shifting the decision making onto people who aren't necessarily scientists. So is that not necessarily or potentially a flaw in the process? If I say, well, I'll give you five options. Here's what you can choose from. How do we know that the politicians then are actually going to make the right choice? Well, I think that's, in a manner of speaking, the mother of all questions. On the one hand, under a democratic system where the government is accountable to the public, this is obviously a good thing, precisely because politicians are elected. So in that sense, the public can hold them to scrutiny. Scientists are, in fact, not elected to make decisions. So it is good that they shift decision-making on to politicians. Of course, under conditions of emergency and especially public health emergencies, this process becomes both quicker and often less transparent than the usual. So in that sense, what the government aims to do often is to claim that science is guiding these decisions, often in part in order to argue that they themselves are not taking these decisions I'm glad you brought that up because that's been very visible here, isn't it, where we're being told the government follow the science, they're having daily press conferences where they actually wheel out their most senior scientists and they're saying these people will answer questions from members of the public. So in some respects that does appear to be transparent and good, but where they're being criticised is that when they then do make the decisions, we're not being told how they're making those decisions. Exactly. That is one of the things that have been um, brought up as obvious faults of this process. I think the other element is the government has not been quite transparent about how they have come to adopt specific kinds of scientific advice. Because as the chief scientific advisor has said, normally scientific advisory groups tend to inform the government in terms of what would be the outcomes of certain measures. But then what is the government being led by when they decide which measures to adopt is not entirely clear. Do you think that in general, they might have already made up their mind and will then pick whichever one best justifies that decision? I think, again, under conditions of emergency, the politicians are more likely to already have an idea concerning what is it that they might want to do. And they're driven by a number of factors. Some of these factors concern the economy. Some of these factors concern estimates about what is likely to win popular approval or support. They're often guided by foreign policy concerns and so on and so forth. So even if they do not have a clear idea of what is it they might want to do, they almost always have a clearer idea about what things are entirely off the table or out of the question. So in that sense, they are guided by their own policy preferences, certainly. What about this idea that there's this difficulty in communicating when you try and translate between a scientist and a policymaker? Is that something that might be making the science go a bit astray? Absolutely. I think one of the things that tend to happen in the science policy communication is that 
scientists tend to be very cautious about giving advice. And that is in part, of course, because the reality is complex and because it is usually very difficult for them to predict things with a high degree of certainty. Politicians, on the other hand, tend to value and privilege advice that seems to give clear indicators of what outcomes of specific policy decisions are going to be. So in that sense, scientists always are on the side of caution, and politicians prefer to have clear data and clear advice that would also give them sufficient grounds for policymaking. But on the other hand, that would also give them sufficient reasons to say there was no other way for us to act or there Uh was no reason for us to act differently. What things can we actually do to address some of these problems? This might well seem like an unresolvable problem, right? Because on the one hand, we are talking about a dialogue, a conversation between science and politicians, um, and that conversation should also involve the public. On the other hand, we are talking about extreme situations. But then I think one of the ways in which this could be solved in the longer run is really to make the science policy nexus more transparent and more open to the public. What does this mean? On the one hand, the composition of expert panels should be open, so the information about expert panels, who is on them, how they make decisions, how these decisions are communicated with policymakers should be transparent. On the other hand, politicians also need to start being more accountable to the public, so they should come out in the open and say, why is it that they chose to act on certain kinds of advice and not on other kinds of advice? So rather than just, we've been following the science, you'd like to see, here's what we've actually been listening to, and here's why we've made that decision. Exactly. And I think another thing that really needs to change is this whole follow the science idea or concept When you look at it, what it's actually signaling is we are not leading. Because if someone follows, clearly they are also not leading. So in that sense, it's a way of avoiding responsibility. I think that that needs to change because I think it needs to be completely clear that when politicians make decisions, they should be able to be held accountable. Jana Basvik from Cambridge University, thank you very much. And thanks to our other guests this week, Melinda Baldwin, Brian Utzi and Theo Bloom. certainly feel more informed myself as a result of this now, and I'm a scientist. Now, we've just got time for our question of the week. And this week, Eva Higginbotham has been feeling out the answer to this question from Matt. Do all humans have the same number of nerve endings on their skin? And if so, do those of us who are bigger, either taller or fatter, have the same sensitivity of a given area of skin reduced? Oh, something of a touchy subject there. Now, our skin has lots of different types of specialised sensory nerves that let the brain know what's going on anywhere on our bodies. But how does that translate to actually feeling something? I put the question to Professor Francis McLone of Liverpool John Moores University. He's an expert in all things touchy-feely. We can feel the sense of touch because the sensory nerves that have mechanoreceptors on them which respond to the physical stimulus of touching something or being touched. We have more densely packed mechanoreceptors in the fingers and lips and less on the torso or limbs. 
This can be visualised with Penfield's famous homunculus, which is a model of a human body where the body parts are different sizes depending on how much of the brain is devoted to sensing that body part. The hand and the lips and the tongue are very large as comparison to the arms, legs and torso. Evan underscore AU on our forum had also heard of the homunculus, though that's a new word for me. So it's thanks to mechanoreceptors in our skin that we can feel the sensation of touch. And the number of those nerves that you have going to a certain body part is called the innovation density of that body part. But how does this relate to size? Now, if you have naturally bigger lips or fingers, then the innovation density will scale up to fill the available space. But tactile acuity, which is your ability to detect a physical stimulus such as a gentle touch, will remain the same, so size shouldn't matter. So, human to human, big or small, we should all have about the same sensitivity in the same body parts. But what happens if you get bigger, like through gaining muscle or pregnancy? Would you still have the same level of tactile acuity as before you expanded? Well, Francis says we don't actually know. Yet. One way this could be tested in the lab is by measuring the sensitivity of a pregnant woman's stomach in early versus late pregnancy. So Altogether, all humans have about the same number of nerve endings in the skin, although they are more concentrated in certain parts of the body than others. So whether overall sensitivity changes with body size, this remains to be seen. So, still something of an unknown. I smell a recruitment drive for a study coming on. Next time, we'll be going with the flow to find the answer to this question from Rakesh. So typically, when electrons flow for the electric current, do they come out from the atoms and flow as electric current? Is it not true that when electrons come out from atoms, light and energy is released? So why don't electric wires change their colours? And if you think you can shed some light on that for Rakesh, do get in touch nakedscientist.com slash question, email chris at nakedscientist.com, come find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientists.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Do join us at the same time next week when we're going to be asking what will the new normal look like? That's life after COVID-19 next week. Meanwhile, thanks to Phil, who put the whole programme together. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay well, stay safe, stay alert and goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.